What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Andy Edstrom. Andy is a financial advisor at Westcap Group. He's a CFA, CFP, studied economics in university, um, and he's also written for The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, and most recently has written the book, Why Buy Bitcoin? Investing Today in the Money of Tomorrow. Uh, this is a wonderful book for people that want to, it's a great book to hand to those people that have asked you about Bitcoin or investing in Bitcoin. And of course, who knows where to start when answering that question? It's always difficult to determine, you know, what piece of the puzzle to explain first or to which part of the rabbit hole to go down first. And so this book provides good historical context. It provides a good overview of the problems in the, in the financial system, the traditional financial system that are being, that are appearing today. Uh, and then of course, it gives a nice overview of Bitcoin, um, the common FUD, the common uh, misconceptions, and then of course the case why it might be um, impactful and important in the future, and by extension a, a sensible allocation in one's portfolio. Portfolio. So um, yeah, this is one of those books that I think will become a classic for just handing off to uh, people that aren't haven't drank the Bitcoin Kool Aid Kool Aid yet, um, and give them just a nice overview, not too much that they get. Um, turned away by the complexity, but enough that they can appreciate the importance and the value. So great book. Uh, Andy's a great guy, super articulate, great uh, background and experience. Uh, and it was a real treat to be able to speak with him. So hope you enjoy. Let's do it. All right. Well, let's just jump right in. Sounds like a plan. So first of all, thanks for coming on. I know uh, you're a busy guy and uh, I know you're doing the rounds on the podcast these days. And uh, I just finished your book uh, today, actually, because as you know, I ordered it off Amazon, took forever to get there and I ended up missing it due to travel. And I so I got the Kindle version, just finished it. And uh, as is the case, whenever I read a Bitcoin book, even though I didn't think it was possible, I get more excited about what's going on. So uh, what I maybe just to start, why don't you just uh, introduce yourself a tiny little bit and then we'll we'll get rolling uh, on the pod. Yeah, of course. Sounds great. So first of all, uh, thanks for uh, buying both the paperback and the uh, <laughs> the Kindle version. Uh, I sold you two books, which is awesome. <laughs> it worked and, out. Uh, it worked out because my my just a, a side note, my old man, uh, I've been I've been planting seeds for the last several years and this year there was some, you know, some kind of watershed moment. So he read the Bitcoin standard. He read the internet of money. He read the little Bitcoin book. He's currently reading uh, Hazlitt's economics in one lesson. And uh, he's bringing up the hard copy of your book. Cause he's coming up near, near where I am tomorrow. And he's bringing that for the plane. So it's not going to waste. I love it, man. That's a lot of good uh, material you got on his plate. So, uh, Great job uh, educating him, and no doubt just listening to your pod has gotten him uh, pretty far up the curve. Um, I just want to say yours yours uh, is one of my favorites. I think I only discovered you in maybe like November, uh, but I'm definitely a loyal listener, and uh, I love the format. So thanks, man. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. So real quick uh, on me. Oh, quick disclaimer. Of course, you know none of this is investment advice, and uh, these. Anything I say is my own opinion, not the opinion of uh, my employer, Westcap Group. Um, yeah, real quick background on me. Grew up in LA, went to college in Massachusetts, uh, went to work on Wall Street, worked for Goldman Sachs for a couple years uh, before the financial crisis. So uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was born and raised on the dark side. And um, 
then uh, when I left the bank, I did private equity for a little while, and then I worked at a hedge fund for about five and a half years. I joined as an associate, and I was a principal when I left. And then I joined the family business, which is wealth management. That was seven and a half years ago. I joined uh, my firm, which is called Westcap Group, which was founded by my father and his co-founding partner. And um, yeah, so I've been doing that uh, that since then. So that's the that's the very quick background. And by the way, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm I live in LA, so I started here. I'm I'm back here. I'm I got a you know I got two kids, so I'm a family man. And um, yeah, that's the that's the quick story, which yeah, doesn't good, tell good. you about Bitcoin, but I'm sure we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get to it. Good job. That was a that was a great synopsis. So um, I've heard you've been like I said, you've been making the rounds on podcasts, which is which is awesome. And uh, all I've listened to the one on Brady's show, um, Bitcoin Echo Chamber. Uh, were you on Kayvon's show? So I was on um, Colin's show, which is Bitcoin Echo Chamber. Right. Then I did Brady's show, which is Citizen Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And then most recently, I did uh, Daniel Prince's show. Oh, that's uh, right. Called, yeah, which is called Once Bitten. Yeah. Yeah. And I listened I listen to those as well. And, you know, clearly... Um, you know, they've all been great, you know, really enjoyed them. Clearly, by virtue of the fact that you've written a book on the subject, you're extremely knowledgeable and you have the context of your career leading up to it so that, that's extremely valuable. What, what, one of the things I want to know is what's it like, you know, you've been in, in wealth management, you've been in the finance space for the last, you know, 10, 15 plus years. Yep. What's it like now for you being an author? Um, how has that kind of changed your day-to-day, -day, your perception of yourself, your perception of your career, your career trajectory, and what's it like, you know, doing all these rounds, getting involved in this Bitcoin world that, you know, perhaps before you were aware of, but now you're having those conversations, you're meeting all these people. What's that whole experience been like so far? Yeah, well, look, it's been awesome. Um, I'll say that I'm still sort of outside consensus um, as it relates to, you know, most of the investment world, right? So, mm -hmm. Um, I think that'll change with time, but especially in wealth management, you know, I think it was Bitwise did a survey of registered investment advisors, or maybe it was wealth managers, I don't know, a few months ago and, and asked them about intent to purchase Bitcoin. And it was under 10%, right? It was something like, you know, what, are you going to buy Bitcoin this year or in the next few years or something? And it was less than 10% that said that. So, or, or maybe it was crypto. So yeah, so outside consensus. So that's been interesting. Um, you know, the community has been really welcoming. Um, I sort of got down the rabbit hole in 2017. So I've been in it a few years. Um, I was, you know, basically a lurker and a wallflower. Although I was going to conferences and stuff, you know, I went through my, I went through my altcoiner phase. Right. Um, and then my uh, conviction hardened on Bitcoin, uh, you know, a little over a year ago when I, when I wrote the book. But um, yeah, it's been fun being outside consensus it's been fun, you know, being welcomed into the community, got a lot of great feedback. Um, you know, career-wise, I'll tell you this, man, this is not a, uh, there's not going to be a financial uh, return on investment <laughs> on this book, right? Because, <laughs> so first of all, my, my out-of-pocket cash cost on the book is five figures, okay? I spent about 7K alone on editing. And I'm really glad I did because um, I got, you know, one of the best editors in the business, her name's Beth Rashbaum. She edited one of Stephen Hawking's books. She edited a book called The Snowball uh, by Al Schroeder, which is probably the definitive uh, biography of Warren Buffett. Um, and then I spent, you know, you know, money on 
artwork and you know the the label for the you know for the for the basically for the well well the logo I should say for the label and you know you got to get filings you know for the ISBN number and you know proofreading and formatting and all this stuff so I'm gonna have to sell a lot of books just to make my cash you know outlay back let alone you know the hundreds of hours you know spent writing etc so so this is a um, this is a passion project. I do think it's going to be really important to the investment world, you know, over the next several decades and in the long term. Um, so, but you know, I did it. I did it because I felt that I needed to get my story out and my view out, and I also, of course, needed to educate my clients. And that was sort of the proximate catalyst for the book. Was it got to be January of uh, last year? And Bitcoin was, you know, in the three thousands, and I was like, "All right, it's, you know, it's time to get into this thing." But I might have to explain it to my clients, and you know, they're not one-off conversations are not going to be enough because they're going to be telling me, "Well, it was at nineteen twenty k, and now it's at three k, and you're a lunatic." And uh, so I knew that I knew that I was going to have to put it in writing, and that was the, you know, that was the genesis uh, of the book. Um, yeah. So hope I answered your question. Yeah. Yeah. And what was the process of writing a book like for you? Because obviously this was outside your wheelhouse for most, for what you've done previously in your career. Uh, I, my feeling or my sense is that writing a book is a pretty daunting task, you know, just organizing your thoughts, determining how you're going to lay it all out, obviously having the requisite knowledge on the subject matter and all that kind of stuff. Tell me about the process of actually writing this book. Yeah. Um, so I had a few ideas and then I just started outlining and the first sort of draft or version of the book was pretty dry. Um, it was really technically focused on what is money, what's the state of the world in terms of debt, what is Bitcoin, you know, what's the valuation and what are the risks? And so that was step one. And it actually kind of flowed out of me, honestly. I mean, I probably had a hundred pages in like six weeks. <laughs> so a lot of the meat got on the bones quickly. Mm -hmm. But then I, you know, started soliciting feedback from, you know, friends and family and trusted, um, you know, people mostly in, in regular way finance. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit the old 80-20 rule. It's like, you know, getting the first piece on paper is, at least it was for me, the easy part. And then of course, you know, really polishing it, augmenting it, filling in the gaps, whittling down the pieces that really don't belong, and then beefing up the hard parts. Um, that takes, you know, a lot more time. So I will say that, you know, as far as my, you know, experience and talents are concerned, um, I consider myself a good writer. I'm a lot, I think I'm a lot better at writing than I am at talking. Um, I think actually that that uh, the talking is is my deficiency or presenting is my deficiency. Um, I've been trying to catch up on uh, on that front, but um, so the, yeah. So the first set, I don't know. I think that the that the first stage of writing was the easy part, and then of course it gets harder when you're whittling down and you're editing and you're just you know you're 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 going at it another draft and another draft and another draft and. Um, yeah, that's the sort of less fun, tedious part. Right. The fun part for me was the was the original part, getting most of the meat on the bones. How long did it take you to write it? So I started writing it in January, and it was largely complete by probably June. And then 
I went through the editing process with Beth and then I sort of took another knife to it basically. So I spent a few months and, but basically it was out uh, in September. Was there any trepidate, you know, because Bitcoin is a never ending rabbit hole as you know, all of us in there in this space uh, are very well aware of, and there's always new angles. There's always new implications. There's always developments in the, in the technology and the social phenomenon, everything. Was there ever any trepidation in writing a book, you know, and obviously in doing so you're putting out yourself out there and implying that you are, uh, capable of doing so capable of articulating what this whole thing is was there any ever any trepidation in that regard yeah so definitely the piece that i had the most trepidation about was the technical section right and one thing i one thing that was really important to me and this was actually a point of debate um with a few people um that i talked to you know family and trusted advisors i felt really strongly that i wanted to not gloss over the basic technicals the basics of, you know, how shot 56 works, how ECDSA works, you know, what is the process of mining a block and, um, you know, and, and basically arriving at that, uh, moment of consensus. And I didn't want to leave that out because my personal experience with understanding Bitcoin was, um, I didn't know anybody who was deep in the weeds. And so it was just kind of on the internet. And I actually hadn't really figured out, you know, the podcasts. Um, I hadn't even found like, you know, Marty Bent or, or Stefan Lavera or, you know, or any of those guys. And this was, I think, before your time, right? At yeah. least podcasting. So, so I was just going on the internet and I had done, I don't know, probably 10 hours of research. And I got the point where I was like, just tell me how the damn thing works, right? Tell, tell me how literally you create security out of this random process of finding a block which requires that you understand basically a hash function as well as a Merkle tree and, you know, the timestamp and, and that good stuff and finding the knots. So I really want to include that. And I wanted to talk a little bit about potential attacks on the network. So that was important to me. And so I wrote it, I wrote that stuff out. That was actually kind of the last piece. It wasn't the last piece I wrote, but I, I basically gutted it and rewrote it. And actually part of that process was I had gotten through a lot of it. And then Callie Rosenbaum published his book, Grokking Bitcoin. And I stopped, I, tweet, I, bit, I tweeted at him about this today, by the way. I stopped writing and I just went through his book cover to cover because I felt at that point like, you know, I really hope I don't, didn't miss something technically. So I'm going to, you know, review this, uh, this resource because it seems really good and he seems to know what he's doing. So, so that, was the, that was the hardest part for me was the technical piece, both making sure I got everything right, but also not going too long and not going too short either. Yeah. And I don't think I mentioned this at the beginning, but um, I thought it was, you know, cause a book like this, I imagine it, it might be difficult to decide how much time to spend on what, you know, portion and, and making those decisions. And I just thought, and part of the reason why I recommended it to my, my father and will recommend it to many more people is you know, it was concise enough to not get lost in the weeds. You know, you provided the initial context, which was, which was wonderful, but you know, there's a lot more you could have gone, but I think you, you said just enough to set the stage for why Bitcoin is necessary and the value prop for Bitcoin in the times we're in today. And then you didn't get lost in the weeds in the technical section, but you gave enough to convey why this is kind of special. Um, so I, I felt like it was really accessible but not in 
you know, not making any trade-offs in terms of leaving too much detail out. So basically accessible to a person who maybe it's the first book on Bitcoin they've read. So I don't, I don't, I don't think I mentioned that, but I you know, want to congratulate you or praise you on, on having done that. Well, I appreciate that, John. It's music to my ears because it's exactly what I was going for, right? I, was, I saw a gap in the, I mean, besides wanting to educate my clients, because honestly, I went, I went and looked in the market and I looked at what was available, right? And I saw a gap between, you know, longer form, basically, and shorter form. And the long form, you know, I mean, look, let's be honest. I looked at Safedine's book and I love that book. And I cite it in my book, I think twice. And, you know, like it's the Bible, right? But then I thought about, is this the first thing I can hand to my clients? And the answer was, I don't think so. Um, and so, yeah, I saw, I saw a gap basically in the market between, you know, really expansive, complete, including lots of, you know, monetary history, you know, and then I also saw a few books which were shorter, which were great sort of intros, you know, things you can crank through in a couple hours. Um, and I, and I, yeah, I really wanted to do something which was in between that, as you say, a beginner could pick up and uh, get through and get a lot out of, but wouldn't be so sort of, sh wouldn't be shorter or perfunctory and would hopefully give enough of the pieces to let the reader say, oh, I get the story and, you know, no single book is going to give me the whole story, but at least there are enough pieces there that I can, you know, go do more research and, and fill in the blanks uh, as needed. Well, exactly. I mean, you're, you're enticing someone who's at the very beginning of the journey not to be turned back by the complexity or the, just the, you know, the, the mass of information that's being thrown at them, right? I mean, we've all had these conversations where we're in a social event or it's a family member or whatever, and they ask you, like, you know, they ask you, why are you so interested in Bitcoin? And, you, yeah. you know, you, it's difficult to determine where to start because they're coming from places of, you know, relative... Uh, lack of information about all the different components of Bitcoin and why it's important and, you know, why it's done what it's done over the last decade. And, you know, you lose them pretty, like, if you don't, if you're not really articulate and really dialed into where they're at, you're going to lose them within like 10, 15 minutes. You know, you start talking about hash functions, they're going to be like, I don't know what you're talking about. So these, you know, these sort of resources in your book in particular, I mean, I look forward to when I have those conversations, just saying, why don't you, why don't you have a read of this book and then we'll get, we'll grab coffee and we'll talk about it. You know? Yeah, no, that's exact. That's exactly the goal. And that's actually what I, what I tell people now. I'm like, I'm like, look, you know, read my book. And after that, I'm happy to talk with you. And yeah. you know, if you can't afford the book, you know, I'll give you a copy. Um, just check it out. But, um, but yeah, that'll give you the base because you, you have discovered as we all have that, yeah, the, the, the one conversation pitch or even the two conversation pitch, um, it just doesn't work. I mean, I've been trying, man. I've been trying to hone, <laughs> to hone that pitch for the last few years and, and others have, have been doing it for longer, yourself included, I'm sure. And uh, man, it's, it's tough. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, I know the motivation for the book was you were coming up against this wall with your clients, but like, what were those conversations like? Because, you know, I guess at some point you saw the value in this thing, you saw past the mainstream narrative and the FUD and you, you know, began to get a realization and a sense for what this really represented. And naturally in your capacity, the, the service you provide, you, you wanted to bring this opportunity to your clients. When you have that sit down, you know, you're, you're in the office or, or wherever you have your meetings and you broach the subject. How, like, 
how did those conversations go down? What was their kind of response to someone who I guess previously only introduced them to more, you know, standard mainstream, you know, assets and investments? What was their response when you started broaching this subject? Yeah, I mean, surprise and mostly negative, <laughs> right? Because, you know, the most people, it's funny, even my, I actually have a number of sophisticated clients and um, my service actually resonates better with them because sadly, uh, the majority of the wealth management business is about sales. Um, That's why I got out of so it. So I resonate. Yeah, exactly. I resonate with that small percentage of the population that could see through a sales pitch to the substance. Um, and that really is the minority of people. Mm -hmm. um, but, but even sophisticated clients, they struggle because it's, um, you know, the, the, the mainstream media coverage is just so abysmal, right? It's so negatively focused. It's so sensationalist. It's so, you know, focused on Mount Gox and hacks and I don't know, money laundering and terrorism. Um, even though, the, you know, the data don't support it, it's all the negative stuff. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it was unfortunately mostly uh, surprise and negativity, honestly. And so at, during that period, like, did you did get turned away by your clients and you thought I've got to make a better pitch and that's the genesis of the book? And has that changed your client's interest in, in the asset? Yeah, it's a good question. So there's two pieces in there. I don't actually remember if it was negative response to the pitch that caused me to, to write the book or if I had sort of already figured that out from conversations with, you know, like friends and family. It's a good question. I, don't, I honestly don't remember. And then, yeah, with respect to, you know, turning opinions, um, it's definitely been, the response has been positive. It's ranged from, wow, what an awesome book. You know, I loved it and I'm giving it to, you know, people I know to, um, wow, I really like the book. And, you know, I'm convinced that there's a place for Bitcoin in the world, you know, but, you know, let's limit the exposure to, um, you know, wow, I, I, I liked your book. I don't get it at all, but it looks like you did your homework. So I trust you to, you know, basically allocate the capital. Um, to, you know, there's still, I've still had a few, a few uh, negative responses. My honest suspicion is that the negative ones didn't actually read the whole book. <laughs> like they didn't do their homework. Um, and, you know, that's their right. Uh, they're paying me, um, you know, to serve them. So when I, you know, serve up this, uh, this document to them and say, you know, do some homework, uh, a few of them. Uh, inevitably are gonna are gonna balk at that so but yeah but overall it's been um it's been a positive response it's been a mixed bag but it's been you know it's been overwhelmingly positive yeah is there any friction or awkwardness you know because bitcoin is fundamentally you know it's been called an option on the you know the failure of the legacy financial system right it's a complete you know it's another currency it's another system it's all these things that we know it is and we're primarily interested in it many of us because it is the antithesis to what is currently going on in the financial and monetary you know uh, domain so you know you've previously operated solely in that domain and you've brought clients you know options uh, investments assets and stuff in that space when you are pitching Bitcoin and you're you're painting this picture that you know it is it is the answer to a crumbling system, as it were, you know, in so many words, uh, do they does it 
change their perspective on other things that you're doing for them? Or is there like a friction or awkwardness where you're saying, hey, this could all go to hell and Bitcoin's kind of the life raft. Like, what's that yeah. dynamic like? Yeah, what's that dynamic? I don't pitch it honestly as the, I actually don't pitch it as, as what you described as sort of the, you know, the insurance policy on the current financial system, you know, going mm -hmm. down the toilet. I pitch it more as debt is too high and it's rising and there's a few ways that could resolve itself, you know, and I can, you know, get into the, the framework of the sort of six, six potential outcomes that I talk about in the book. Um, so the, and with the most likely outcome being inflation, um, you ought to own some inflation proof assets, some inflation proof money. And by the way, the thesis for Bitcoin in that framework or in that light is basically the same as gold, right? Um, it's largely the same, uh, the same arguments, but I, but I, that's kind of the framework I use. And then of course I layer on the non-correlation and it's the best performing asset of the decade. And it still has a lot of potential because the total addressable market is, you know, 10 to a hundred times uh, the current value. So that's kind of how I approach it as opposed to the, you know, doomsday. Um, this is the thing you want to own uh, in a disaster. Cause I got to be honest with you. Well, it depends on what you consider sort of a disaster with the existing financial system in a true societal disaster. Um, the most important asset to own is going to be nine millimeter ammo, right? Uh, let's be honest. Um, right. So it's not even going to be gold, right? It's not going to be gold. It's not going to be cash. That's food, going to be the food most, and bullets. And food water. and bullets, man. Yeah. That's going to be the, those are going to be the most uh, useful liquid things. So, yeah. So that's how I approach it. And what's it like, you know, you, you mentioned that you're, you know, that your father founded the firm and I, he's still there, right? As far as I know. Yeah, yeah, he's still he's still five days a week. Uh, he loves what he does. He could have retired years ago, but um, he loves he loves two things. He loves you know serving clients and helping people, and he also loves the constantly changing you know multivariate problem, which is financial markets, uh, which is endlessly fascinating. Right, and you know I've I've you know, many years ago, actually kind of currently now too, now that I think of it, but I've worked with my dad uh, before as well. Right. And oh, that's cool. a whole nother, you know, kettle of fish in itself. Yeah. When, when you uh, broached this subject with your father, what was his response initially? Yeah. I think he was, I mean, I'm sure he was skeptical. I'm sure he was skeptical. Um, but I had already done a decent amount of research. And so I sort of educated him and got him up the curve. But yeah, I mean, he is, he's not one of these guys, you know, God bless him, these, these uh, computer science distributed systems, crypto guys who, real, who, you know, who read the white paper and are like, yes, this is the thing. Of course, this is going to work. Um, that's a very small segment of the population. And he's also not, uh, you know, he's not a hardcore libertarian or an anarchist, mm -hmm. you know, or, you know, a serious um, Austrian economist, um, you know, which I wasn't either. I wish I had been, wish I'd been exposed to that stuff earlier. So yeah, it took, uh, you know, it took some convincing, but to his credit, um, he is open-minded. He 
reads and thinks very widely. He is very much a, a generalist and um, and wide uh, and open thinker. So, yeah, he um, he got it. I don't know if I want to say faster than I thought he would, but yeah, maybe maybe faster than I thought he would. Faster yeah. for sure than most you know boomers, uh, you know, or people of his age. Uh, I think get it. Yeah, my my dad's sixty seven or. Some something like that, 67, 68. And yeah. I, I get such a kick out of now when I'm when I'm home. You know, somehow the the subject will come up. We'll be sitting around having a few drinks uh, after dinner or something. And um, you know, obviously I talk about this stuff all the time. Uh and mm. you know, someone might ask me something about it. And now he's jumping in. He's like, I got this one, John. Let me uh let me just explain this to this uh, noob over here. And I love it. Like, and he'll like go down through so many and i'll just be sitting back like wow that you know that's pretty good that's i love it really good. there's some oh, satisfaction in that man there's oh got to be there's satisfaction i got two kids there's satisfaction in in teaching uh your kids things and seeing them learn and grow and i and you know likewise there's satisfaction in a kid teaching their parent something um that's cool too yeah a hundred percent hundred percent uh going back to the firm and stuff just to um like what how do you guys get your clients into Bitcoin if it's something they choose to do? Is there like, what, what kind of channels do you use? Yeah. I mean, there's, so I'm probably not going to comment on, you know, on specific channels or products, but I'll speak generally, which is, you know, there's obviously GBTC, that's the Bitcoin trust. That's the, that's sort of the only publicly traded pure play Bitcoin product you can buy in a discount uh, brokerage account. Um, but there are new ones coming to market, you know, Bitwise has a has a Bitcoin only product. Um, there's several limited partnership structures, you know, which are basically hedge fund structures, um, but they have you know decent liquidity, so that's sort of more work. It's more paperwork, um, but you can actually buy the asset, you know, at net asset value, you know, without paying a premium. Um, although there's you know some complexities with that, and there's restrictions in terms of you know you got to be accredited or qualified you got to have a minimum net worth so yeah there's a there's a few there's a few options um on the market and honestly you know we're past the point in my opinion where a wealth manager can reasonably say oh you know there's not a reasonable product that's available you know to use for my clients i think you could have argued that a few years ago but um yeah we're we're past that point right and uh, when you were writing the book did you i mean did your bullishness your enthusiasm your optimism on bitcoin harden accelerate expand like what what happened there and if the answer is yes did it change your investment approach to it because i i get the sense i mean obviously you're a professional in this uh this industry you know balance constructing you're an old hand at balancing at constructing balanced portfolios and all the rest of it have you stayed within the confines of what you advise your clients or are you taking a different approach personally? If no, you're comfortable I, saying, I you feel, say. I feel the same. You know, I feel the same way. I bit, uh, as you know, my clients. So um, I did make the usual journey between, well, the journey of you know, crypto as an asset class, and yes, Bitcoin was you know the first. But wow, look at all these whizzy new ones that are better. Um, to my credit, Bitcoin was always you know my largest position. Um, likewise for clients. Um, and, but yes, I became more Bitcoin maximalist before writing the book. 
And then as I wrote the book, my conviction was hardened further. Um, I don't know if that's because, you know, it forced me to literally, you know, put things onto paper as, as a lot of people say, you know, if you really want to understand something, uh, write about it cogently. Uh, so, but there was definitely, there was definitely an element of that. And yeah, I am, I haven't bought, uh, I haven't bought anything but Bitcoin, you know, as far as crypto or crypto assets are concerned in, I don't know, at least a year. Yeah. And do you have a very kind of strict approach to how you take and hold a position? Like, do, you know, do you, you're a professional at balancing portfolios. Do, like, do you have a, you know, how do, how do you construct that for yourself? Yeah. So um, for clients, we have, look, we have a risk framework for clients. Okay. So we have a risk scale, which is one to nine and one is lowest risk and nine is highest. And that governs basically the portfolio allocation. And by and large, you're going to have more quote unquote risky assets at the nine level than at the one level. So that's one piece to consider. And then as far as my you know, personal risk tolerance is concerned, I have a pretty high risk tolerance. So my allocation to Bitcoin is, is higher than my clients. Um, I'll, I can definitely tell you that. And um, it's interesting though, when, when, when making the, the portfolio allocation for clients, it's an interesting conundrum because the thing is uncorrelated to other, to basically all other assets, you know, except other cryptos. Um, and it's arguably one of the best hedges against inflation for, for when that happens. And I don't know when that'll happen. It could happen soon. It could, you know, not happen for years. Um, so really arguably ought to be in anyone's portfolio, including the lowest risk. And when you think about the quote unquote lowest risk portfolio, what does that actually mean? Well, it means it has more bonds, right? It has more fixed income. And it especially has more uh, quote unquote low risk government bonds. <laughs> well, if, uh, if inflation turns into a significant problem, and I think, you know, over the next decade or two, it's like almost inevitable. It's hard to say when the what the timing is, but, but, you know, it's, 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 I don't want to say a certainty, but, but it's high probability. Well, then your quote unquote low risk portfolio is actually going to get whacked you know, potentially worse than the quote unquote high risk portfolio, because at least some of those assets in the high risk portfolio, you know, generate an economic return that is going to be somewhat inf uh, insulated from inflation. So you can make arguments, you know, on either side with respect to how much, you know, sh should you put in the portfolio? We have started small. Um, we've been very conservative. I mean, we've started clients at less than 1% allocation. And so, um, you know, it's hard to make the argument that you can't afford to lose, you know, 1% of your portfolio, right? Sure. That's a near impossible argument. This is sure. something actually that, that stumps a lot of people. They don't understand this concept of risk in the context of, the por of a portfolio, right? There isn't, there isn't really such thing as a quote, uninvestable asset in terms of the risk. There's only sizing of it, right? Right. Even if you've got a bet, you know, if you've got a, an extremely risky asset where, you know, it's 90% chance that it's going to go to zero, but the upside is, you know, hundreds of, of uh, you know, 100x uh, plus. Well, if you size that small enough, 
it probably ought to be in the portfolio, especially if you sort of circumscribe the portion of the portfolio that is those um, very asymmetric risky bets. So yeah, that's some that's something that actually surprises and stumps uh, some people, including some clients. Some people get it, and other people have to have to think about it before they understand it. Yeah, and it's also <clears throat> excuse me, it's also a interesting conversation to have, particularly in the current climate. Is like, is Bitcoin risky? I mean, is it a risk asset? I mean, of course, people will look at the volatility and say, well, of course it is. Look at look at the swings and look look what it's done over the last two or three years, but that's one way of looking at it for sure. But you can look at it another way and say, well, it's monetary policy is set in stone. And it's been that way for over a decade. You know, like in environments where there's a lot of unknowns and chaos, and you could, I think we could all make a, a it's not too controversial to say in the current climate, geopolitical and, and financial all over the world today, what central banks are doing and with a variety of asset classes, there's a lot of, chaos and that's manifesting in in many different ways that bitcoin is looking increasingly you know it's and it all depends on timeline of course right what your time frame is time frame is but i i feel like if we continue to move in this direction with the legacy system and legacy assets and investments it could easily see a, a, a time in the not too distant future where people will value more and more the simple fact that Bitcoin's variables, many of them are, are known. What the market is going to do with those variables is a little bit unknown in the short term. But man, like in a context of a, a central bank that can print a ton of money and what the, you know, they can do to interest rates and what, what's happening in all other asset classes, the, the certainty of Bitcoin makes me think it's not such a risky asset or at least may not be seen as such in the future. Yeah, I agree 100%. And there's a couple things embedded there. So one is, you know, is Lindy, right, in the passage of time, which is, yeah, it, you know, talking to clients and explaining that it's the best performing asset of the last decade, which means that, oh, it's been around for over a decade, by the way, this quote unquote, newfangled money, it's not that new. Right. And yeah, every day that goes by that the monetary policy remains intact and that the network keeps cranking out, you know, blocks every 10 minutes plus or minus um, adds to that thesis. That's one. And then yes, definitely, you know, when I, I, I am of the belief, which other people have said that um, it's riskier not to own than it is to own, right? Like you would be a little bit crazy in my opinion, especially if you had a fixed income, you know, government bond skewed portfolio, you'd be a little crazy um, not to hold this inflation-proof asset because the one thing that can crush your fixed-income-heavy portfolio or your annuity, um, you know, product is going to be yeah, is going to be inflation. So mm -hmm. definitely, you ought to own a little bit of this stuff, and it's riskier to not own it at all than it is to own a little bit of it. In my yeah. opinion, yeah, no, I'm inclined to agree. What What's your take on the current? situation and this could be just how you think about it yourself or how you address it with clients but you know bitcoin was born out of the fires of the the great financial crisis right and uh it's only existed in a bull market since that time and it seems like we're on the precipice of another downturn now maybe it's uh, you know put off by by certain measures but at some point it's going to come whether it's this year next year five years from now i mean uh, the, the party's got to end at some point. And even if it's not the the big, you know, finale of, of this uh, legacy system party, 
there's got to be a recession. There's got to be a downturn. And certainly things like black swan events like the coronavirus don't, uh, you know, don't help. How do you think Bitcoin is going to respond in uh, that sort of scenario? You know, it was, it was built to act as a life raft. Do you think it's a such a risk on asset that people are going to have to liquidate to, you know, uh, you know, cover their, you know, just get out, get out of such risky assets? Or do you think it's going to, there's going to be a flight to it, using it as a safe haven of some kind? Yeah. So I think there's two pieces there. There's, there's the history so far, and then there's what's the future. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things I did in the book was I actually, I did a simple exercise, which was up to that point, as you pointed out, there hasn't really been a, a real bear market, you know, since Bitcoin existed. I mean, technically we had a bear market in U.S. stocks, uh, you know, a year and change ago, but it was just barely and it only lasted, you know, a quarter. I mean, yes, the S&P was down 20%, but it didn't last very long. So there were five cases that I looked at in the book, basically where U.S. stocks, where the S&P was down 10% or more. And in two out of five of those cases, Bitcoin outperformed. And in two out of five, it underperformed. And in one, you know, it was about the same. So it was like, sometimes it was better, sometimes it was worse, sometimes it was no different. Um, we're going through a period, you know, literally as we speak, where, where we're getting tested, right? Um, I mean, I was, uh, I tweeted out on Friday that I was buying stocks, actually that I was buying stonks <laughs> um, on Friday, um, you know, at a point when the S&P was down between 16 and 17%, you know, from the recent peak. And Bitcoin's been down this week too. I mean, I think Bitcoin's down probably in line with stocks more or less. Mm -hmm. So in these very fast liquidations, pretty much everything loses value except for, you know, high quote unquote, high quality government bonds like treasuries. Um, treasuries, you know, have made money. So yeah, so we haven't yet seen the safe haven status. I think that the safe haven status will eventually out, but that will be at least an order of magnitude from here in terms of value and maybe two, right? I mean, that's, that's you know, two trillion to 10 or $20 trillion, you know, Bitcoin, right? In terms of the total valuation. Um, I think we, I'm actually optimistic that we will get there, but uh, I don't know that we're that close. Um, and that's okay because uh, because that's the opportunity, right? But the time it's truly a safe haven and negatively correlated, like reliably negatively correlated to uh, to stocks and real estate and other risk assets, well, the thing's going to be worth a lot more because that's an amazing asset uh, to hold. Right, you'll have missed out on a decent amount of the growth, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, thoughts on the having coming up? Yeah. What are they? Oh, in general. Um, so actually, in one of the earlier pods, I think it was uh, it was Brady's Citizen Bitcoin. I talked about how I actually think it is a fundamental event because if I were you know a government or consortium of governments, I and I were going to attack the network, I probably would do it right after the happening or the having, which tells you that if the having happens and nothing happens, well then you're probably good for another four years. So I do think it is potentially a fundamental event. Then there's a the question of well you know. Who cares about whether it's a fundamental event because price, you know, marches to the beat of its own drum. Um, certainly in the recent halvings, we've seen um, price go up into the, halving, into the halving, and then usually it corrects a bit afterward. And then, you know, the, 
it goes to the moon, right? You have, you have a big bull market. So that doesn't mean it'll happen this time. I actually am inclined to think that the, that the pattern will repeat to some degree. So I do expect upside basically from where we are, uh, you know, today um, at, I don't know, 8,500 or whatever um, through the halving. And um, yeah, so I would say more or less, I expect the cycle to repeat, but on the other hand, it wouldn't surprise me at all if the cycle doesn't repeat because um, history often rhymes, but it does not repeat. Right. You know, it's funny in, in the Bitcoin space, <clears throat> And of course, you know, it's easy to understand why, but we all look back and say, well, this is how it performed previously. So we should expect a similar performance, uh, you know, in the future. And, uh, you know, one thing about Bitcoin is maybe long term, it's somewhat predictable, but it, you know, you, you never really know what it's going to do. And it has a, a mind of its own. And, um, you know, it's... It, this is why I think there's this push toward, you know, dollar cost averaging in to take your position rather than trying to time the market because that rarely works. But speaking of that, are you tempted or do you have a strategy or do your clients ask you about once they become familiar with the kind of boom bust cycle that has characterized Bitcoin thus far in its life cycle to trade during, you know, the blow off top of a bull market to take some profits, get back in at a lower price. Do you have a strategy for that or do any clients expect that from you? Yeah, um, it's interesting. I haven't, you know, I haven't previewed that with them yet. Um, for most of them, you know, the position is small enough that it's not going to be like life changing, you know, wealth, right? If the thing 10x is, it'll be, you know, a nice addition to the overall portfolio performance, um, but it's not going to change their lives. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I would say the, I don't try to be too clever about trading. I think that's mostly a loser's game. And I certainly don't, you know, recommend the average person, you know, try to time this stuff. So I definitely am skewed toward, uh, toward dollar cost averaging, um, you know, and uh, full disclosure, I have invested in one Bitcoin company and that is Swan Bitcoin and, and they're rolling out a dollar cost averaging uh, product. Mm -hmm. So I do believe in that. With respect to taking some money off the table, yeah, the there is a basic tenet of portfolio management which says that you should rebalance the portfolio periodically. So, if you you know if you have a target allocation for any asset, you know, and it was whatever three percent, and then the thing tripled or quintupled, and now you're at nine percent or fifteen percent, well, you probably ought to trim it back, and then you have to factor okay tax right if mm -hmm. it's in uh, you know if it's in a tax deferred or tax-free account then you're more inclined to trade um or to cut it back but on the other hand if it's in a taxable account and you got to pay capital gains then you have to factor in well you know how much income what basically what is the capital gains rate that applies to the client and that depends on overall income etc cetera, etc cetera. So it's a bit of a mealy-mouthed answer but but yeah if the thing you know if we go into the six figures in dollar terms in this next cycle, yeah, we're going to, as reasonable portfolio managers and fiduciaries, we're going to have to trim some back. Um, I'm never, well, I shouldn't ever say never, never say never about anything, right? But I'm going to be reluctant to go to zero allocation, right? I'm always going to want to want a position. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, if it gets, if it gets too big, um, you know, you have to, you have to trim it as an investor. 
And I'm kind of getting the sense that, you know, if you broach it with a client, a new client, existing client, you don't, you know, when they get in is not a function of price. Is that correct? Like you just, you know, if they're interested in Bitcoin as an investment, you take a position over a period of time. It's not, you, you know, you're not waiting for something in particular. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, it's at the moment, like could my perspective on that change? Yeah, it's possible. But I would say at the moment and for the foreseeable future, I'm not going to want to have zero allocation. Right. I'm not going to get too tricky or crafty or clever about trying to time, you know, when I get in, um, I might start with a small, a really small allocation. If I don't feel like the timing is great and average in a bit, but yeah, I'm, uh, I wish I were, I were so brilliant that I could, uh, you know, that I could time it perfectly, but let's be honest, the, with, with an opportunity that's so asymmetric, right. Where the, where the probability weighted upside is so much greater than um than the current price the biggest risk is that you just miss the boat right you 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 wait around and you wait for your price and it just takes off and uh and you miss it yeah um so that's uh that's an unacceptable outcome uh based on you know current facts and circumstances and and what i know yeah Andy, you're clearly not following some of the excellent TA people on Twitter. They can tell you exactly <laughs> when the bottom is in and when to buy. So yeah. just a suggestion. Yeah, yeah. No, I. it's funny. I actually, I spend some time, I do actually pay attention to some TA folks a little bit just to mm -hmm. kind of uh, observe and uh, partly for entertainment purposes and partly to, to see if, you know, what they're doing seems to work. And I think the problem with TA for me as a fundamental investor is um, sometimes it works and it'll work until it doesn't. Um, and especially there can be, you know, fundamental events that really just change the, the environment. You know, I can imagine a point at which a central bank of a, you know, minor country goes public about owning Bitcoin, right? Yeah. Well, your chart's not going to tell you <laughs> what's going to happen to the price, right? The, the pr if you're if you're out at the, that point, you're going to be really sad that you don't have the exposure. Um, so yeah, it's um, I do pay a little bit of attention to those guys, but I don't drive um, I don't drive you know trading or investment based on those guys. Yeah, is it what's most exciting to you right now about Bitcoin? Like you know, you just wrote a book, you're on the book tour, you're doing the podcast, you're talking about it. Uh, you know, you're balls deep in the rabbit hole, like many of us, I'm sure, and, and further every day. Yeah. What uh, What's most exciting to you? And as I, you know, kind of add on to that question, is it difficult to engage in, you know, the traditional aspects of your job, knowing that this new world is being built and all the exciting things that are happening in it? Yeah, I mean, look, it's definitely the most fun part, right? I'll be honest. Right. Um there's there's no hiding uh, there's no hiding my interest in it and my excitement about it. So that's that question. And then yeah, what's the what most excites me about it? What most excites me about it is is that it might actually be a solution to this debt problem, right? I mean, clearly we've had this huge intergenerational transfer of wealth, and clearly we're in an environment where, you know, regardless of who gets uh, nominated and then who gets elected um, the government's going to be printing trillion dollar plus annual deficits 
this is in the US, right? Yeah. And, and foreign governments are doing similar things. So it's like, well, it's going to end badly. So it could end really badly. Um, or if we can find some way of, you know, forcing a change and bringing it to a head sooner, you're actually going to potentially avert a lot of pain. And when I say a lot of pain, I'm talking about, you know, I'm talking about the Ray Dalio perspective, which is current facts and circumstances look most like the 1930s, right? Yeah. Like these kinds of scenarios with, with populism on the rise frequently end up in war, um, whether it's uh, internal, you know, civil war or, or, you know, world war. So yeah, I would like to avert that outcome. And, uh, <laughs> and I see this as the best, you know, thing that I've seen because I don't see um, any of the other potential solutions um, to this problem as being likely to, uh, to pan out. Yeah. You know, that's a, a good point and one that I hear quite often, one that I felt myself and I've, you know, I've, I've talked about it a bit on the pod, so I won't go into too much detail, but effectively any, you know, someone who's interested in being informed on the world and seeing with the utmost clarity, they look out and say, holy shit, you know, there's a lot of problems. And then you speak with guys like Ray or you read their material or, you know, you, you construct an, a, a picture of the world and you think this doesn't look good. And then Bitcoin comes along. And for many of us, it is, as you just articulated, it's that thing that might, quote unquote, save us, you know, to be a little dramatic. But it, yeah. it might be that thing that, you know, allows us to uh, avert disaster. Um, when, you know, prior to learning about Bitcoin and really seeing it for what it is, and then subsequent to doing so, you know, did your perspective, worldview, attitude, uh, hopefulness change you know, in any meaningful way? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it's, I'm uncertain about, you know, what I was thinking about specifically in that respect a few years ago. I was definitely, uh, I was definitely a, a bit depressed about the fact that interest rates had, were so low and that the implication was returns were going to be so low, right? So I've spent my career, you know, in the investment business and, um, I actually put out a letter to clients in mid 2016, which was a year before I discovered Bitcoin. And the message was, look, with interest, we, by the way, we as a firm had a really strong track record of performance, you know, in the 25 years up to that point, um, or more than 25 years, I don't know, 27 years up to that point. And the message was, look, you're not going to get that performance going forward, right? Like that was great, but lower expectations significantly. And that wasn't a great message. And at the, <laughs> it was interesting at the time, you know, we were for sure in the minority in delivering that message, right? The message coming out of other wealth managers was eh, all is well, you know, sure. We're going to keep making you, you know, ton, tons of money. You're going to make double digit returns, owning stocks over long periods of time. Of course, that's it's it always a good time to invest, right? Yeah, that's right. It's exactly, it's always a good time. It's yeah. always a good time to buy my product. Um, so yeah, so, and I took the opposite view and, and my father agreed with me and we decided, no, you know, we're going to lower expectations. We're going to tell it like it is or how we see it. So that was, you know, that was a, that was a downer. Um, I will say that I, did, I actually hadn't really realized and internalized the magnitude of the debt problem really prior to finding Bitcoin. I mean, finding Bitcoin was a forcing function for understanding money 
and also really understanding the depth of the, of the debt problem. I knew that it was a problem, but I actually hadn't fully internalized the magnitude of it until right. I found Bitcoin. So, so I don't know, maybe there's a countervailing factor. I mean, there was sort of a, there was an increase in the, in the, Oh shit uh, perspective, <laughs> right. but on the other hand, you know, I saw that this could be a, a solution. So, so that was positive. Yeah, well, that's probably the best way for it to happen, right? You got the simultaneously, oh, simultaneous, oh, shit, but right after you have, oh, but wait a second, yeah, maybe right. maybe we can do something about this. <laughs> Where right. I think a lot of people were like, oh, shit, for several years. And then yeah. they, they had to suffer through that until, you know, they, they got in touch with Bitcoin. Um, what's, I, I, don't, I don't mean to disparage either myself or anybody, any of the other pods you've been on or the people you've spoken to, but clearly the world that you're now in is does not look anything like the legacy system right so the legacy system is the journal the economist yeah. you know your your mainstream financial media sources and stuff like this and now you're an you know published author in a world in which the people that you're interacting with to have these conversations to promote your book to uh, you know discuss the merits merits of your investment thesis are like for lack of a better term, I don't mean to be me, but like weirdos in a way, as far as the mainstream <laughs> is concerned, you know? Sure. So sure. what, I mean, what's that been like for you? And like, have any of your friends raised eyebrows? Like, you know what I'm trying to say? Like it's, you're yeah. in, you're in, you're in yeah. the weird, wacky, wonderful world of Bitcoin now. And it's very different from the world that you've come from. Yeah, it's true. Um, in one respect, I don't know, man, maybe I just got used to it, right? Like I'm a weirdo too. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I am clearly a big advocate. I am clearly a Bitcoiner. Like I'm way deep down the rabbit hole and I just keep falling deeper every day. Right. So maybe I've just, maybe it's just normalized for me. Like uh, you've just found just your home and now you can express yourself. <laughs> yeah, maybe it doesn't seem strange. The other thing too is like, honestly, the quality, I mean, Yes, there's new pods coming up every day, but like, you know, you and all your um, colleagues in the podcast business, let's say such as it is, keep getting better, right? So, like, I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure you're continuously improving and um, you know honing your craft and uh, and getting better um, every day. So, I, so there's actually probably some convergence there. And then the and then maybe the last piece of it is. The, the public perspective, or, you know, or uh, the way people perceive the mainstream media has just rightfully gotten worse and worse, right? So, so when you think about reputation, and then of course you look at how, you know, those things like the Wall Street Journal, like the Economist, you know, like the New York Times, cover Bitcoin, and you're and you're like, guys, this is just embarrassing. Like, right? Can you at least just get your basic facts right? Um, so they discredit themselves. All yeah, of, all exactly. The yeah, they exactly they discredit themselves all over the place. And I think actually public opinion now has has probably shifted to the point of you can't reasonably get, you know, a balanced view from any single publication, right? So like politicized all over. Yeah, the place. I read the Wall Street Journal. I read the New York Times. I read The Economist. Those are like my arguably three main, you know, quote unquote, regular way um, news sources. And they're all wrong in their own ways, and they're all biased and skewed. And um, even if I read all three and, and think about the just juxtaposition of those opinions, I still don't necessarily, you know, get the get the full story. So, yeah, gone are the days. Gone are the days when you could depend on one 
or two news sources for the quote unquote truth or most of the truth. And some would argue that, you know, it was never that way. But I think that that public opinion is coming around to that view by now in a way that that it hasn't uh, until uh, relatively recently. Yeah, that's my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I agree totally. And like, I'll, I'll sometimes throw on CNN, Fox, I don't watch a lot of TV at all. But sometimes if I'm in, if I just want to it's a double-edged sword, right? Because I, I'll turn on Fox or CNN because I just want a good laugh. I want to see how ridiculous <laughs> things have gotten. But yeah. then I get sad right after because I'm like, oh, my God. Like, this still this still forms the basis of a lot of people's perspective. And, you know, that's that's upsetting. But yeah. um, I'll say, yeah. by the way, I'll say from per, from personal experience that I have completely cut out TV as it relates to uh, information and news. For sure. I mean, I mean, it's... Yeah. Um, I'm at zero. I'm at zero allocation on that on that uh, source. <laughs> yeah, and uh, that wasn't always true, but uh, it's actually not entirely true, right? Like, I will if there's a clip, like if Bitcoin is covered by CNBC, you know, or it's covered on on video on Bloomberg, you know, I'll watch it. But um, but yeah, sure, but that's just because you're on the sidelines TV. rooting, like, yes, go, go, go. <laughs> um, it's true. But you know what, man? Like one of the I'm, you know, I'm obviously, you know, incredibly enthusiastic and optimistic about this, uh, this whole thing, but it's such a, and I've talked about this a little bit before, but it's such a paradigm shift that obviously you're going to question yourself at intervals throughout this journey. You know, you'll, you'll read, you'll educate yourself, you'll, you'll take a position like a intellectual position, and then you'll think, like, is it like, am I, am I crazy? It's like, is it really how, what I'm seeing it as like, is it really what I think it is? And uh, one of the things that kind of keeps my compass pointed in the right direction, or at least what I feel is the right direction is despite how they may appear, you know, a lot of people in this space, whether we're talking about podcasters, people that write articles, people that, you know, give talks on, you know, YouTube, you know, the whole gamut. I'm like one of the things that makes me kind of and you know there's there's an echo chamber argument to be made here but leaving that aside for a moment I just the people that I see and, and have the 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 opportunity to interact with I just see people that are you know doing their best to think as clearly as possible on as informed a basis as possible articulate themselves as clearly as possible be humble enough to learn as much as possible and like i've just it's it's a phenomenon like i stand back and i think like wow like look at this global grouping of people that are obviously connecting mostly online and in, at intervals at conferences conferences and stuff and like i've i've never encountered a group of people that i feel are so authentic and genuine and and you know um willing to learn and willing to to question their own assumptions and all of that you know so that's one of the things that like if i ever get questioning myself and think i'm going insane i look at these people around me and think no there's got to be something here because there's a lot of really really great people interacting in a really unique way yeah i agree um when i you know the way i frame it in the book is you know i still do say that the thing could fail and, and go to zero sure. um not least because of the unknown unknowns, right? And as an investor, you always have to say, you know, what's the thing, what's the thing I didn't think of that, that could kill it? Yeah. And there's always 
something by definition that you didn't think of that could happen. So there's that. Um, and of course, I think I agree 100% with what you said. Part of it is not only the well-intentioned people, but also, you know, just the lever, the caliber basically of, of intellect that's come into this thing, right? Like yeah. people who are much smarter than me um, and there's a lot of them and there's more every day. Yeah. So that's just really impressive. Um, you know, literally the, the IQ points coming into, coming into this space um, as well as just a range of backgrounds. I mean, you look and you say like, yes, you know, you, you got your, cypherpunks and your hardcore libertarians and your anarchists and et cetera, et cetera. But you've also got just a range of, a wide range of, uh, of folks and, and people with different backgrounds from different parts of the country and different countries all across the world. So yeah, it tells you, it tells you that there's something going on there. And I think that the fact that it is a thing that is completely outside or at least came completely outside from the regular way financial system always will give you pause. And you really have to say, wow, like, is, could this really possibly, could this really possibly be? So yeah. You know, do I sometimes wake up and ask myself, you know, am I crazy? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Although it's, it's becoming less and less frequent. Uh, right, I got to right. tell you uh, my, uh, my hodl grip has strengthened with time. Well, I know what you mean. I mean, sometimes I wake up and think I'm not crazy enough. Like I'm not, I'm not devoting yeah. enough time. I'm not devoting enough resources. That's right. Talk to, uh, talk to Bitcoin Tina. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, that, I'd love to talk to Uber him Bull. someday. Yeah, I know. I listened yeah. to, um, he did, he just did a series on, I think the, was it the Bitcoin magazine podcast? Yeah. Yeah. It was Yeah. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Andy, do you have a bit of time to run through these rapid fires or? Yeah, of course. Let's do All it. Right. So, uh, if you, do you know the drill? So I'll, I'll, I'll ask you a series of questions and you can answer them however long or short as you want. And yep. then we'll just do some word associations at the end where I'll say a word. You tell me the first thing that pops in your mind. Cool. First one. What is money? What is money? Okay. Money is a medium of exchange across space time. And by virtue of that, um, it is also uh, a store value and a unit of account. But those Econ 101 textbook definitions don't tell you the underlying characteristics. The underlying characteristics of money, uh, I believe there are 14, which I cover in the book. Identifiable, transferable, durable, divisible, dense, fungible, uh, scarce, short-term stable value, long-term stable value, private, unseizable, censorship resistant, required for some purpose and backed by some power. Um, it's important to note that no form of money scores well on all those characteristics. And by the way, none of those characteristics is binary, right? It's like a continuum or a sliding scale. So, um, so each form of money is just a unique uh, collection of those, of those characteristics in my view. And then maybe the last thing I'll say about it is, I think the Austrians had it right. I think Karl Menger had it right that there's basically three, three types of goods in the economy. There's consumption goods, there's capital goods, and there's money. And yet, um, none of those is discrete. So every good in the economy is partly one of those three. And as a result, the best money is the money that is only useful as money and nothing else. And if, uh, if we're right, 
Bitcoin could be the purest and best uh, form of money someday. Right. There's two things I, I want to say about that. One is that, I mean, you're, you're effectively redefining money, you know, because money was defined in a much more limited scope previously. And you've just, you know, articulated 14 different, for example, unseizable. That was never a foundational uh, attribute of money, right? Now, you, in saying, in providing your list, you're you're effectively saying you think it's a quality that a good money should have, and I totally agree with you. But uh, so, are you kind of in that in in constructing that list, redefining what you think you know good money is, or what what money what attributes money should be judged on? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. I mean, my, part of my frustration actually with the journey of learning about Bitcoin and learning what is money was that there were these sort of incomplete pictures of, of actually what the underlying characteristics were. You know, some people would say there's five or six or seven. And I think that it's, I think that one can make a reasonable case that some of those characteristics are more crucial than others. I think that's a fair, you know, that's a fair statement. Sure. Um, you know, in the book, I score the dollar and I score gold and I score Bitcoin along those characteristics and I equal weight them, which is probably wrong. But on the other hand, I think, reasonable people can agree that I might value certain characteristics more than you value them, that somebody else might value different characteristics more, or I might value certain characteristics some of the time and not, you know, at other times. Um, I think the unseizability, is that the one you just called out, the unseizability? Yep. Yep. That one usually doesn't matter, except when it really matters. Like mm -hmm. if you're, you know, fleeing, you know, for your life out of uh, some unstable political situation. So, yeah, um, I, I don't claim to know the ground truth on fundamentally which ones are absolutely more important and by, you know, by what amount. But I will take to task or argue against anyone who argues that, you know, any of those 14 is totally irrelevant and unimportant. Yeah. And I, you know, for the example that you just mentioned, where you said, you know, unseizability doesn't matter until it really matters. Totally agree. But I think that particular rabbit hole goes even deeper in that if you have a form of money, a way to store value and transmit value, medium exchange, et cetera, that is no longer confiscatable, that's unseizable. That's a, a fundamental attribute of how the, you know, society's approach to money that will probably have, you know, extremely profound effects on how societies are structured, you know, and, and I won't get into it too far because I've gone into it a little bit in another pod, but, uh, you know, a lot of our, if you, if you trace back through the development of human civilization, a lot of structures in society were developed to protect value in, in its various forms, money and land and cattle and, you know, grain and all the rest of it to have a, an asset, a form of money, that you know, people say, well, it's still confiscatable. It is still confiscatable. You could be tortured or whatever, but it's the first form of money that requires your um, participation in its in its confiscation. So, for example, like someone could just kill you and steal your gold, or steal your cash, or take your safe, or take your jewelry. It's the first form that they need you to participate. So, if you just decide, I'm going down down with the ship. I'm not giving up. You know then it's unconfiscatable. And I like, again, that's a rabbit hole in itself. And I think it's a super profound shift. And again, one, one of the reasons why Bitcoin is so compelling and, and the implications that that would have uh, in 
the layers of society that are constructed on top of money, which is, you know, uh, many. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I fully agree with you. And I like your framing of it's participatory. It does require participation to, to give up the asset. And um, of course, the, you know, the, the, the crucial book here is the sovereign individual. And I hadn't encountered that book until I encountered Bitcoin. And I've since read it two and a half times. Um, uh, so yeah, it's, uh, there's no doubt that society will be reshaped in very interesting ways um, if and when Bitcoin uh, becomes significantly more dominant. You're spot on. Yeah. Um, and if you've got time, I want to take a slight detour because this is the one thing that I had in my mind that I actually wanted to make sure I talked to you about because sure. you mentioned it in the book. It's, uh, it's something that I don't think a lot of people maybe outside of this community are very familiar with, but it's the the moneyness that is the term you used about it. And, you know, basically, as the argument goes, many different things that we interact with in, in our world will have a certain portion of them. So whether it's your car, your house, paintings, bottles of wine, whatever, some of the premium will be a, a monetary premium, not yep. their, their usefulness or whatever. Um, and that has, that, that's a pretty instructive, um, way of understanding what's happened to money, fiat money today, and how the destruction of fiat money has increased moneyness in a variety of other goods. You could think of it in terms of the value from the money seeping out into the broader world. And what are the implications of our world being imbued with value? What are the implications of more things in our world being imbued with more value as a function of the degradation of the money? So could you just elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah. Wow. Okay. There's a lot there. Um, <laughs> and definitely this is covered in the book. So yeah, totally agree. And one of the things I mentioned earlier, you, cause you were asking, you know, about what is money. And I talked about Menger's, you know, concept of, um, consumption, good capital, good and monetary good and how the, how the borders blur. So, yeah. So most things that we think about are part money. They may also be part consumption, good and you know, part capital good. I mean, you know, you think about, well, a, a car, right? For example, um, car can be part consumption good. You know, you, you drive to the beach and you enjoy leisure or it can be capital good, right? You drive to work and it allows you to be productive. Um, many things, of course, in history that have been used as money are also consumption goods. You know, and the classic items are, you know, cigarettes, you know, in prison or out, you know, soap, uh, cell phone minutes. Um, these things are part uh, consumption, but good part monetary good. In the investment world, you know where I come from. There's the monetary element um, versus the capital good, and we just call that liquidity, right? The example I use in the book is, you know, maybe I trade, maybe I buy an apartment complex, and I pay, you know, 16 times cash flow for that, but I can't get out of that asset, you know, easily, right? I have to run a sale process, and I have to go through the all the uh, steps that are required with buying and selling a property. On the other hand, I could own the property or a group of properties in the form of a real estate investment trust that trades every day, or let's say five days a week on an exchange. So maybe I'm willing to pay 20 times cash flow for that asset rather than 16 times cash flow because it's quote unquote liquid. And another way of saying that is is the money, you know, the moneyness quote unquote there is is embedded in that liquidity. So yeah, there's um, there's a moneyness 
to all assets, there's, you know, a consumption good element to most or all assets, and there can be a capital good element, and, and all those lines are blurred. Now, as you pointed out, um, you've got the, the concept of, uh, you know, sort of moneyness or store of value really embedded in a lot of assets. And there is no question that many, many people the world over buy assets, not because they want to just earn a rate of return, but really because they want to avoid inflation and that loss of value that you highlighted. And that's where you talk about the monetary, pre uh, monetary premium or the store value premium that's embedded in things like real estate, um, you know, arguably gold. I mean, you can say gold is money or you can say it's sort of um, related to money and it's more of a store of value, but it has that, that premium. Um, you know, people, people pour value into these assets just to avoid inflation. And in a world where Bitcoin takes a significant portion of that, and that's one of my, you know, five, five legs of, of where does, where does the value seep into Bitcoin from? There's no doubt that, um, that some of it is, is monetary premium that will come out of other assets, the biggest of which is real estate. And those are, you know, nobody really knows what the monetary premium embedded in uh, some of these assets is, but these assets are, there's, there's no question that in the 200 plus billion dollars of real estate globally and the, you know, 75 plus billion dollars of, of equity value, et cetera, et cetera. There's definitely, uh, excuse trillion. me, what, was I saying billion? I yeah, meant to trillion. say trillion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 200 trillion of real estate, 200 trillion of, uh, of, uh, of stocks. There's definitely some monetary premium embedded in those and it's got to be, you know, trillions of value. Yeah. And I think also um, it's interesting to explore, you know, if, if for no other reason than just, you know, sitting at home, running your own thought experiments or, or thinking more deeply about some of these things. But <clears throat> excuse me, the um, the effect on society in culture and behavior when the money, the value that's supposed to be contained in the money seeps out into a variety of other things in, in, in the world. So when, I just feel like if, if most of the value was contained in the money, we, we would probably have a more like kind of austere sort of world where people weren't, you know, putting, placing so much value on the chains and the designer clothing and the cars and the houses and the artwork and the this and the that, because and I think that's just, of course, some of that will still exist. Yeah. But if, if all of those items were seen as being less valuable, then presumably they'd be less sought after. They'd be less uh, used as status symbols, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm interested in, in kind of running those thought experiments of imagining a world where most of the value uh, is, is actually contained in the money and what that means for social you know, behavior. Yeah, no, 100%. And I, I agree with you. And I think, uh, I think most Bitcoiners are on the same page, which is yes, consumer culture would be curtailed. People would probably, you know, have lower time preference, they would take a longer view. Right. Um, part of that is because interest rates would, you know, the equilibrium interest rate, let's say it would just be forced higher than what it is today. So there actually would be an embedded um, I don't want to say risk-free, but let's say, you know, just time value return on accumulated uh, money and accumulated capital. And more incentive than, to save. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. That's, a, that's a shorter, more clear uh, way of putting it. <laughs> exactly. There'd be an, a real incentive to save. And then there's, you know, 
it would be disruptive to entire industries. It would be disruptive to my industry, right? I mean, why should um, why should everyone who has, who has significant assets, you know, basically be forced into hiring some third party manager to do their asset allocation and give them financial advice, you know, when instead they could, if they want, you know, just store their value and maintain their purchasing power, you know, in in this single asset. So yeah, yeah I agree with you. Yeah, and as just to, to finish off that point, as is highlighted so often today, I mean, one of the reasons why we have this diverging wealth gap where the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer is because, you know, the, the rich uh, are able to sequester their their value in these assets that keep pace with the degradation of the value of money or inflation or whatever. And people that are earning money paycheck to paycheck are unable to do that. So simply as a function of one's able to preserve purchasing power, one is not, then you're going to get a divergence of, of wealth, you know? Yep. 100%. I've, I've got a, a short section in the book and I've actually considered sort of expanding it. I even, it occurred to me to even write, you know, a whole book I would call it the ethics of Bitcoin, right? Do it. But yeah, it, it has to do, you know, specific, I'm not going to do it, by the way, I don't have time, <laughs> <laughs> but somebody should. Um, <clears throat> uh, but yeah, you know, I've got a section which talks about exactly that. I mean, it talks about, you know, the Cantillion effects, right? Which is first the money goes to the bankers and the CEOs and the corporations, and eventually it trickles down to the wage earners, but they're sort of last in line. It's what you said, which is um, the people who actually have assets, um, can afford to not hold cash because because we all the first dollars that we all I shouldn't say the first dollars but the first you know money that we have to hold or the first asset that we have to hold is cash money because everyone has to transact so you know if I can only um, accumulate a thousand dollars period well I'm gonna hold that thousand dollars in cash because I need it to to run my household um, it's only after you um, escape that sort of bare minimum of capital, working capital, right? It's what we call working capital in the investment business. Only then can you accumulate more capital, get it out of that, you know, crappy inflation, inflating asset and, uh, and put it into something that's going to, that's going to work for you. And yeah, of course, the, the people that have the capital are the ones who, uh, who can afford to do that. So yeah. there you go. And in a money that isn't degraded the way that the current fiat system is stands to reason that problem would be uh, minimized, right? To some degree. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It would at least, uh, it would at least level the playing field with respect to, you know, the, the lower half or the lower quartile or, you know, wherever you want to draw the line in terms of income yeah. of the population. And at least they, cause that, cause that portion of the population that's only got, you know, a minimal amount of money socked away, literally a hundred percent of their net worth, um, yeah, is, is bleeding away uh, in time with inflation. Yeah. All right. Big detour there. Let's get back on yeah. track. Um, back to the rapid. The, we're going to be more rapid in, uh, in this <laughs> rapid fire section. Yeah. We got one uh, question in. Yeah. There's only 20 more. <laughs> um, if you had to explain Bitcoin to a 10 year old, what would, you, what would you say? Yeah. I think I would just say it's, it's internet based money. How will I mean, you that's, know? The, that's the short answer. Right. How will you know if Bitcoin has failed? Yeah, if nobody's if nobody's talking about it, right? If no one cares, basically. And by the way, I'll 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 put a footnote on that, which is, you could argue that if it's a wild success, that'll also be a, the outcome, right? It'll just be some base layer protocol that nobody really talks about, and it'll be you know, 
several layers of abstraction down. Right. Nobody so talks that, about TCP IP, for example, right? Right, exactly. Most, most normal people. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, but yeah, basically, if, if nobody cares about it or nobody's, you know, using it, then I would say that's, that's failure mode for me. How will you know if it's a success? What does Bitcoin succeeding look like to you? Yeah. I think Bitcoin succeeding, at least in terms of the symptom, is is unit of account status, right? It's where people are measuring value and reporting value and transacting uh, in terms of uh, in terms of sats. Can you imagine? Can you imagine <laughs> going to the I deli? <laughs> I, I can imagine it, man. I can imagine it. Uh, you know, it's going to take some time, but um, it's definitely imaginable. Yeah. Um, makes me happy make fill, fills my uh, fills my heart with warmth me too man i mean people listening can't see the gigantic smile on my face but uh <laughs> yeah me too uh you've got one resource uh, to hand to someone not your own book who um who you want to bring into the you know who, who you want to help on their bitcoin journey what is it to help inform them yeah like one piece of reading material or something right yeah book article podcast episode yeah website one and i can't choose my own well it goes without saying yeah i guess that that yours is one of them yeah i guess maybe you have to say bitcoin standard um because that's like because that's the complete you know that's the pretty much the complete story um so i i probably i probably still have to go with uh with safedine it might be a different answer if it's like well you know the qu- it's it could be a different answer if that's like the only resource or if that's just the first resource. Yeah, first. Let's go with that. First, yeah. yeah. Maybe it's Jan's book. You know, maybe it's inventing yeah. Bitcoin. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah, because um, because that that is very digestible and it's you know it's it's cut um, it's cut pretty lean. You know, I mean, Gigi's you know twenty one lessons. That's even more you know dense. Um, and digestible. I don't know, man, there's so much great stuff. I mean, there's five, there's, there's four or five other books that, you know, I really like. Um, yeah. I, uh, I'm not sure I'll go into all of them, but, uh, it's, it's crazy. And even during the last bull run, there wasn't, I mean, a great deal of resources out there, obviously Andreas's stuff. And I think he had yeah. one stroke, two books published at the time, maybe the mm-hmm. second edition of internet of money. Not much on the go. And I mean, whenever the next bull run happens, assuming that it does, I mean, man, you're going to be spoiled for choice if you're a, a noob coming into the space. Yeah. I mean, you got, yeah, you got, you got Knut's um, book. You got Kelly Rosenbaum's book. That one is, you know, much more technical. I mean, yeah. I, I really loved um, Understanding Bitcoin by Pedro Franco, which I think came out in 2015. It's, you know, it's been out. It's been out for a while. I mean, there's a little Bitcoin book. Um, uh, there's so much stuff, man. Yeah. Uh, so much what, good stuff. What, what, what other investment are you most interested in right now in the landscape of investments? Yeah. It's actually gold. Um, it's actually gold, man. Hard money. Hard money is going to be probably really important in the next decade. And are you interested in gold simply because even though, correct me if I'm wrong, you probably think Bitcoin is a harder and better money than gold, but the just simple fact that 
gold is more lindy, more people are familiar with it, that people will flock to that as a flight to safety rather than Bitcoin in the short to medium term? Yes. And it's time frame. I mean, I can make a case for Bitcoin and gold doing well in the very long term. I'm talking about multiple decades. I can also make a strong case for Bitcoin or for gold doing very well and Bitcoin doing very well, you know, in the next cycle. Um, I do believe that Bitcoin will take share from gold. In fact, I wrote that in the book, right? That's part of the investment thesis. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, does gold eventually become viewed as, you know, truly obsolete? And um, I think that's definitely possible. I think it'll take a long time to get that outcome. But, you know, there still likely will be, will be demand for that physical, um, that physical good that doesn't require internet access. Um, gold and Bitcoin are very similar and they're competitors, and yet they do have some discrete characteristics that are different that could be valuable you know, to someone. They could both be valuable to someone even in the very long term. For sure. Uh, what's one piece of advice you'd give to someone just entering the space? A noob friend, what would you tell them? Yeah. I would say buy a tiny amount, right? Get that little piece of skin in the game. Make sure you don't buy more than you're comfortable literally losing tomorrow. And as you learn about it, um, you know, then size up your exposure, uh, you know, as you get comfortable, basically. But yeah, just start with that little bit because, man, there's nothing like a little bit of skin in the game to focus the mind. Totally. Uh, what movie or song is most related to Bitcoin in your opinion? Oh, yeah, man. That's an easy one. The Matrix, obviously. Right. And then, and then this one, actually, I was thinking about this earlier today. I wouldn't pick a song, but if I was going to pick a band, it might be a Rage Against the Machine. I've gotten that several times. <laughs> uh, can Bitcoin be stopped? If so, what is Bitcoin's biggest vulnerability? If not, why not? Yeah, man, you know, I've got the laundry list of risks in the book, but mm -hmm. the biggest risk, so can it be stopped? Yeah, I mean, look, there's, as an investor, I never assign a probability of zero to something, right? You can have minuscule probabilities and you can be 99.9% .9 sure of something happening, but you can't ever really be 100%. So could Bitcoin sure. fail? Yes, Bitcoin can fail. Okay. What's that failure mode? I guess it's, I guess it's probably, you know, long-term concerted government attack, you know, coupled with some general uh, public perception that, that Bitcoin's going to, you know, destroy the world or the political system or the financial system if it succeeds it's something like something like that it's a combination of government focus and also public focus that are you know just extremely negative and uh, and concentrated and focused over time yeah I think, which is which is extremely unlikely in my opinion but you know it's yeah possible. i mean i think the the public perception attack vector is not that unlikely, you know, I mean, obviously FUD is just a common thing that's been around for a long time, but the more these problems become exacerbated, uh, whether they're environmental or whether they're inequality or, you know, whatever, I can see a large scale 
public narrative forming against Bitcoin. And that could be problematic. And I don't think it would kill it or stop it, but it could delay things dramatically. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And that's you know part of the reason I wrote the book was I, I do strongly believe that education is really important. I think sure. what you're doing, educating people, I think what, you know, people who write, whether it's articles or books, um, you know, people write and talk about it and get people to understand the benefit. I think that's, um, I think that's really important. God's work. What, uh, what is something about Bitcoin you don't understand very well or need to spend more time on? Yeah. I mean, I would, um, if I were financially independent, right. If Bitcoin had already made me rich, if I'd already made my FU money, right. Uh, I might go deep into, into cryptography. Um, that would be, that would be high on my list is, is to really understand the stuff, including, um, the exit or the ongoing research into, uh, quantum resistant crypto. Mm -hmm. Um, but even just understanding, you know, in depth ECDSA and SHA-256 and, um, and also the, you know, the history of prior, uh, cryptographic tools. Um, I would love to do that. Yeah. In uh, my when, copious, in my copious spare time. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, when, if ever, do you think the first central bank will start adding Bitcoin to the reserves? And do you think central banks will exist in 20 years? Yeah. So I'm going to say, yes, they're going to exist in 20 years, although it depends on what your definition of a central bank is. Um, you know, if Bitcoin succeeds, then, uh, the powers of central banks at that point will be significantly reduced, significantly curtailed. Um, will, uh, sorry. Oh, when will a central bank buy Bitcoin? Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's possible that one already has. Um, I think a more interesting question is how much time will elapse between them buying and them announcing it? Um, but yeah, I, I think it could happen. And then it's possible that significant, you know, sizable central banks start doing it in the next few years. What's going on right now, as you probably know, is central banks are, are scrambling to buy gold, right? Um, especially Russia and China have been big net buyers of gold. Yeah. Um, so if they're big net buyers of gold, like, you know, why not Bitcoin? And the answer is, well, securing Bitcoin is harder. Um, on the other hand, this is the, you know, when people dispense the FUD about, you know, losing private keys and security and, you know, how on earth, how on earth could an institution, you know, basically keep this stuff under control and not be subject to either hacking or, or inside jobs, right? Inside theft. And my answer to that is, well, uh, governments have actually been managing secrets, you know, for decades and they do it with, sort of mixed success, but this is the way it's going. So it's just a, it's just a civilizational fundamental skill. It's just a thing that will have to get figured out, right? And yeah. resources will be dedicated to it. And we already know something about managing secrets and, you know, the, the public custodians now, which there are several have figured it out and they'll get better at it. So, yeah, I think that um, once a few more years have gone by without a major theft of a you know well-known public custodian and we know who those all are um then at that point hopefully institutions uh, including central banks could get comfortable dipping their toe we'll see
What have you learned about yourself or how have you changed, if at all, as a result of learning about and interacting with Bitcoin? Yeah. Um, I can't say that it's, you know, dramatically changed my personality or my life experience. I'm not like one of these guys who was out partying all the time and now I have a much different time preference, right? Like now right. I'm taking the long-term view. Um, <laughs> I was already a family man and hope, hopefully taking somewhat a long-term view. Right. Um, I was already a tight wad, my wife will tell you. So maybe I'm even more so. Like maybe I'm even more reluctant to uh, to spend and at the margin, maybe I do want to spend stack a few more sats in a way that, uh, that I didn't before. But, um, I think that's, uh, I guess that's what I'd say. Most contrarian or controversial view, uh, or opinion, if not on Bitcoin, any subject is okay. Yeah. So I will stick to Bitcoin and this is, I'm not sure it's a contrarian view within Bitcoin, but it's definitely a contrarian view in society. And this is the environmental FUD. And I actually discussed this uh, at some length on the last pod I did um, on the Once Bitten podcast. And that is, I think it's actually more likely than not that Bitcoin will be a net environmental positive, you know, in the long term, right? Sure. I, think ten, I think 10 years from now, there really is a pretty significant probability that the historians will say that, yeah, man, you know, the, the unlocking of distant otherwise uh, unusable renewable energy sources was accelerated by Bitcoin. And that brought the capital cost of this technology down and the efficiency up. And that caused people in emerging markets, especially to install, you know, wind farms and solar arrays and, uh, and hydropower uh, rather than, you know, coal plants uh, a few years ago. And man, we're, we're sure glad that uh, that they installed that renewable capacity rather than uh, the dirty stuff. Yeah. It's so crazy how many things Bitcoin has at least the potential to fix. You know, it's It is, man. Bitcoin fixes this. We I hope. know. I know, but it's it's just like not only is it yeah, I'll I'll leave that one, but it's just it always blows my mind how many things it, uh, it has the potential to positively positively impact. Me too. One one of the reasons I felt so deep down the, down the rabbit hole is it's so pervasive and it just touches everything. And man, it's so fascinating. Like how could how could you not be fascinated by this thing? Yeah, no, totally agree. Uh, ballpark estimate of Bitcoin's price in five years. Yeah. So the upside case in the book is four hundred k on ten years. So if you're saying five years, I'll definitely go six figures. Maybe I say, I don't know, maybe I say 150K. So would that mean that you're kind of maybe not an adherent to the revered stock to flow model? Um, I think the stock to flow model is really interesting. And it's sort of my base case or my greater than 50% case that it's right, at least for another cycle or two. There's one thing we know for sure, which is eventually it will be wrong, right? Mm -hmm. It won't, you know, you won't, it won't get reach it, infinity. Exactly. It won't reach right. infinity. So the, yeah, exactly. So, so the question is how many cycles does it hold? Um, and we don't know, but you know, it's a pretty, it's pretty interesting. It's logical. And I can see why people take it seriously 
and I take it seriously with a large grain of salt. And, you know, I don't have, I don't have high confidence in it, but it's definitely one of the constellation of factors that I consider. What uh, will be your response if we're just wrong about all this? Yeah. So I am honestly, <clears throat> well, I feel that I am, I will be okay if the whole thing fails. And the reason is because it's so asymmetric, I would be more unhappy with myself for not having investigated it, for not having done my part, you know, to add to the conversation. Um, because the facts and circumstances just, you know, make it so interesting and exciting. That doesn't mean it couldn't fail. It could fail. So I don't think I will be psychologically devastated. I'll definitely be down, man. I mean, let's be honest. It'll be, it'll be depressing. Um, it'll be depressing, but, uh, but yeah, I think that it's one of those things where it's like anything else in life where you say, you know, should I have done the entrepreneurial thing or, you know, should I have pursued, uh, I don't know, some, something, a relationship or, you know, gone somewhere and you do the regret management thing. You, you, you look back and you say, well, how will I feel if I didn't try it versus how will I feel if I tried it and bailed? And for sure, man, I will, I will, I would have regretted not trying. I would have regretted not trying. Totally. And I think when you, whenever those circumstances do arise where you look back and if there's regret, like you've got to be able to look at yourself honestly and say, did I pursue it for the right reasons? You may have pursued it for the right reasons and it doesn't turn out. And then there's a level of, of peace around that. But if you, you know, so getting exactly into it for right. the right reasons is important, I think. Yeah. Um, this, la this second last question comes from uh, someone on Twitter that hit me up yesterday, I think. And they said, I, you know, they suggested the question. I thought it was awesome. So would right. you sell all your Bitcoin to see it succeed? <laughs> Oh man. <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> That's a great one. Yeah. I guess I would I sell all my Bitcoin to see it succeed. I guess the question what's not clear about the question is like what's the inverse? In other words, if you're asking me would I would I do it to guarantee success? The answer is probably no, because I'm fairly confident that it will succeed. So it's like, I'm not buying that much more incremental insurance versus what I think the circumstances are, right? However, if you said, well, if you hold it, you know, guarantee failure, then yeah, of course, of course I would, uh, of course I would, I would give up the, the sweet, sweet Bitcoin because um, A, you know, from a selfish point of view, it wouldn't, it wouldn't help me anyway. And B, like, how could I possibly, you know, inflict failure and crush all the dreams of the, all the people working on this thing who are, who are great people. So, so I think that's my answer. Yeah. I mean, I think that was a very uh, diplomatic or clever answer. I think the, <laughs> the, 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 the question was trying to get at like a sense of altruism, maybe if you yeah. had to release all your coin to see it succeed in, in some sort of magical scenario, but I guess I'll, maybe I, I'd like to think I would, but if I'm, you know, I like to think that I would, but you know, I know I'm greedy too. So, uh, so, who, so who does? Right. Uh, any question you'd like to see added to this list? Um, question I'd like to see added to this list. Yeah. I mean, I, I always want to want to know like what's the best pitch or the best hook or the, you know, the thing that people are finding success with 
when they're trying to explain Bitcoin or get people interested in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm always, I'm always interested in that. Like what, what are you pitching at people? You know, what's working? I think old faithful orange coin, orange coin, good number go up. is <laughs> yeah. like hijacking greed, man. You, this doesn't get yeah. any easier than that. Um, okay. Last part word association. I spew, I, I'll say a word. You, you tell me the first thing that comes to your mind, right? Democracy. Good. The lightning network. Young. Governments. Problematic. Human rights. Important. Violence. Negative. Trump. Negative. Ego. Uh, Unavoidable. Wealth. Um, Important. Privacy. Crucial. Hate speech. Uh, Unfortunate. Gold. Money. Guns. Violence. Revolution. Mm. Coming. Socialism. Bad. Family. Most important. Inequality. Unfortunate. Hell. (laughs) Um, Heaven. Liberty. Uh, Also crucial. Energy. Uh, Fundamental to life. And Bitcoin. Money. That's it, Andy. I... uh... I've taken up a bunch of your time tonight. I didn't intend to go so long, but I appreciate uh, appreciate you being patient with me. Uh, is no there any, anywhere, any places, destinations you wanted to shout out or direct people to? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, of course, the book is called Why Buy Bitcoin? The subtitle is Investing Today in the Money of Tomorrow. It's available on Amazon. Uh, it's also available on Apple. Um, follow me on Twitter. I was just a lurker doing nothing on Twitter until a couple months ago. Uh, my handle's Edstrom Andrew. That's my last name and my first name, Edstrom Andrew. And um, I do have a personal website. It's andyedstrom.com. It's not updated. I got That's on my to-do list, but I'll do that eventually. What kind of and stuff is on what's there? That? Is it, what's, it's what's... basically just the book. <laughs> 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 um, and then, you know, my firm is, uh, is called Westcap Group, and we have a website. It's www.westcapgroup.com. Do you see any books in the foreseeable future? What, any like uh, like writing more? Yeah. Oh, man, I don't, you know, I'm having too much fun, uh, you know, promoting this one, honestly. And, uh, and the promotion is important. I mean, you know, these things don't uh, expose themselves. You got to get people to read them and then tell other people. So I think my time is actually better spent um, trying to get the word out on what I already wrote. You know, might I write something, you know, more someday? Yeah, maybe. Um, I think it, I think it was, uh, I'm really glad I did it. And I encourage, I encourage people to do it. I mean, it's definitely within reach. Um, You know, self-publishing Yes, there's some steps you gotta you gotta jump through, but um, it is doable in a way that it really wasn't, uh, you know, before the internet. And um, if you feel compelled to get your story out there and your and your view on the world, um, you know, I encourage people to go for it. Yeah. Well, man, for what it's worth, like I, I said at the beginning of the show, I uh, love the book. I think it's a tremendous uh, asset in the space, and it's a great tool for 
people like myself and I'm sure many others to hand to family members and friends and people that, you know, they, they want to bring into this, uh, you know, this uh, space that they are so passionate about, but haven't really found the, the right avenue yet. I think it's a really concise, well-written uh, book to, uh, to draw some newbies in. So uh, I wish you the best of luck in your, in your promotional efforts. I'm sure we'll be hearing lots of you over the next few months uh, on the podcast circuit and that kind of stuff. And uh, I look forward to continuing this conversation over uh, a couple of beers sometime. Likewise, John, the pleasure's mine. I uh, hope to meet face-to-face soon. I'm so grateful for uh, what you and the other podcasters do. And I'm so grateful for everyone that's you know already checked out the book. So uh, thank you all. And um, it's been a blast, man. Awesome, man. Will you take care of yourself? Talk to you, talk to you in the future. All right. Have a good one. See you, brother.